Hi, this is Tim Smith of Wiglaf Pricing. I, I just woke up after nine months and they put me here? Here? Why? Anyway, you're listening to Sassholes. I don't know what's going to happen. It could be fun. Let's go. Welcome to Sassholes. We are revenue ops with an edge. With decades of making interesting decisions, Jamie, Jason, Marcus, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. DemandFarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now. We got some shout-outs to do. Michael Boyk, new gig, Senior Director Inside Sales at CDK Global. Louis Christopher, one-year zip recruiter. Ben Coots, two years at Jobcase. How you doing, buddy? Sean Carroll Sandy, new gig, Chief Revenue Officer at Sauce Agency. Adriana Silver, three years at Tegas. How you doing, Adriana? Andrew Land, even older school, four years at Jump Crew. Hey, buddy. Dave Tuttle, new gig, Chief Revenue Officer at Recruitix. Dennis Dohaney, starting a new gig, President and Chief Financial Officer at One Home Health Agency. Way to go, fam. Impressive, but not surprised. And then we got some birthdays. Amir Shalabi and Arjun Nutaki. What's up, boys? Happy birthday. Another spin around the sun. Tim Smith, welcome back to the Sassholes Podcast. How the hell are you, my friend? I'm on the right side of the planet, meaning upright, not stuck below it. So I am happy and good to go. Let's go party. Well, we had a good time the last time, and I learned my lesson. I took my Dramamine, uh, so I'm ready uh, just you know, just in case. But I think you'll be stationary, which is which is good. I do appreciate that uh, sign you have behind you. You are the uh, founder owner of Wiglif Pricing, aren't you? Somebody had to do it. Damn I mean, straight. I was looking for a job, and after I sent out a thousand resumes and got like two responses, and one of them says. What's this word remuneration? I don't know what you're talking about. I was thinking, well, if you ain't going to employ me, I'll employ myself. There we go. Let's go. That's why I did a podcast. So our background is uh, Jamie and I, we were trying to figure out some pricing back in the day for this stuff uh, called SaaS. And uh, do you remember how that went down, Carney? We bought a few. It didn't go well. What? It didn't go well. (laughs) <laughs> mainly because um i think pricing is is uh a very hot topic and everyone's got an opinion on it yeah and, the dude's a professor man he's got a book, a I, book i know he does but there's a lot of people who shouldn't be talking pricing things. but the the way it went was we bought i bought uh six copies of tim's books and we went through it i'm like oh shit yeah yeah so when you go into that board meeting, you say, it's right here. Tim says it right here. Because the problem that we're running into 
we were a startup company that grew and grew and grew. We were bolting on products, bolting on products. And we just tried to figure a way to bundle things together to get a subscription going. And we use a lot of stuff from your book to help guide us. Isn't that right, Carney? Yeah, I think the biggest difference, the one the one very small nomenclature that you have there, Pete, was we no. were bolting on products and we were incentivizing reps to add those products to an overall deal and pay them a lot more. So therefore, a $100,000 renewal of just one product became a $100,000 renewal of which 80000 was on the new product. And uh, because they got incentivized and they, the person didn't even know they were buying. Right. He's a, he's a pricing guy. He's not a compensation guy. So if you're trying to figure out how to price stuff out, pricing strategy, setting price levels, managing price discounts and establishing price structures, Tim J Smith, well worth the money. I'm sure it's gone way up in price. Tim, how's that book doing for you? It's doing extremely well in India and China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where people are not so afraid of math. In the States, it's kind of trumbling along. But yeah, I've become extremely famous in India. Now, why is that? People are more defensive here. Or they think, oh, well, I get paid this high salary, so I should know this already. Tell it's me about here. these new articles you're writing, Tim, on pricing. Specifically, the spinometer? Spinometer. No, it's a spinometer. Spinometer, okay. Speedometer. It's a measurement. It's a measurement of your pricing spine. Do you have one? That's what it comes down to. Do you even have one? How many vertebrae are in your spinometer? According to the measurement, do you have any vertebrae? Maybe you have negative vertebrae. People wanted me to put in negative numbers for I got I'm losing spine every day. I was like, no, that's too mean. Let's just stick it one to five. But yeah, I'm talking about pricing spinometers and companies and trying to point out to, to the world if a company can do pricing or well, kind of wings it. So, so what, what is, would be yeah. what would be the best way to get the best ranking on uh, spine spine meter? So which companies out there, I know you've you've published a bunch of articles, but which companies have the best spine meter in your opinion? It's spinometer. I thought it was spinometer, spinometer, spinometer. It's not Spidey and Spider-Man. It's spinometer. Here we go. I tell you, I've been, they're, they're smattering random here and there companies. I used to think, well, if it's this kind of company of, I'll be bad. I was wrong. And I wasn't didn't know this until I actually started looking deep, deeply at these companies. So I looked at uh, General Mills and how they're managing pricing. And what am I looking at? What am I looking for? I'm looking for a confluence of two issues. One, does a company care? And two, does it have anybody capable of doing it? So really, I'm looking at the importance of pricing according to the CEO and the CFO and their strategy, the importance they put on pricing, does the leadership care, and capability. Does that importance they put on pricing translate into developing a capability 
people, process, tools, the ability to respond to pricing. And it was stimulated by a couple of factors. One of them, simple. We took a look at, uh, well, we had something called a pandemic. We may be in the endemic stages today, but we did have something called a pandemic. And one company after the other company was just flat-footed in pricing. They couldn't do nothing. They didn't know what to do. They went, oh my God, my world is falling apart. What do I do? And I'm just like, yeah, because you, you, don't, you don't have anybody advising you internally who knows stuff about what to do in pricing and you're, you're lost. Maybe you need a pricing capability. Oh, but I can't invest in pricing capability. That takes too much time. We're like a cost city. I was like, shut up. Maybe you should make it important to you and then follow through with action and building a pricing capability. So that's what started me off in writing pricing spinometers to point out if a company has a pricing spine or not, has the capability and find it important and are willing to stand up and say, I'm worth money. Or if they just simply walk around and says, uh, whatever you want to give me, I don't have a spine. Just give me some money. I'll be happy. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So that's what caused the pricing spinometer. So does a company cares, number one, what's number two? Do they have any people, process, and tools to follow through? Okay. So how do you know if a company example. cares? Yeah, I'll give you an example. You look look at Qualcomm, right? And I want to contrast Qualcomm versus NVIDIA. They're two tech companies. More specifically, they're silicon companies. They're fabulous wafer companies. So they ship all their actual production off to somebody like TSMC, and they actually make the wafers and they get them back. It's all nicely set up and whatever. But they design the chips. So two companies, both design chips, Qualcomm for making uh, RF and NVIDIA for you know video and matrix multiplication addition, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, Qualcomm clearly makes a lot of money off pricing because it's licensing. They don't have any people doing it or very, very few people doing it. And when you talk about pricing, when the CEO of Qualcomm talks about pricing, uh, they, they don't really say much about it other than, you know, it's what the market will bear or we're watching this or, you know, we're trying to make, we're actually, our focus is on engineering prowess because we got to make the next generation of RF circuitry to keep winning. And that our whole focus is on keeping our engineers happy so we can win in the next game. And they don't really put pricing as important to their winning, although it is, right? And they don't really have any people, team, doing it, okay? And I'm just using public information. I'm not, I'm not like doing stuff. It's publicly available information, which is important because otherwise it'd be anti-competitive process or I'm violating stock rules. Forget that. It's publicly available information. In contrast, I switch over to NVIDIA. They got like pricing managers, pricing directors, pricing analysts. They got pricing focused on sales orientation, pricing and product management. They got pricing 
people working on business units. And then there's also the question, is it a U.S. business or is it a Japanese? And they got pricing by region across the globe. And they got the CEO talks about the importance of pricing and how it's helping driving this. They're very aware of, you know, the price of an NVIDIA chip for gaming versus for that for uh, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and for driving cars automatically. The, the CEO is, again, still focused on the next generation technology, but it's clear they're aware the importance of price capture and price follow-through. And both of these fabulous chip companies deal with a problem that their customers expect like a 20% year-over-year price decrease, and they have to work in that environment. One of them has invested in pricing capability and thinks it's important. The other one says, yeah, you know, really it's the engineers and I don't have any pricing people or very, very few. Same industry, two totally different outlooks driven by the CEO. One so, of them say has a pricing spine. The other one, no, not really. Can you talk to me like I'm a 10-year-old on the spinometer? Is 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 it like here's your list price and here's what you here's what you netted out? Is that what you're looking at? No, because no. okay. Well, I was gonna say you're not you're looking at this from afar. They're not clients of yours. You're because you you have no idea what the discount is. It's more of a, just an attitude, right? It's more of just more a, of an attitude okay. and an ability. Do you have the capability? Okay. And, and and I'll tell you where it's going on here. So yeah. pricing strategy, the textbook, I I wrote down what it takes to do to get the price right in different situations, what the questions were, right? And how to actually think about pricing properly, whether you're pricing SaaS, DAS, anything as a service, I don't care, or movies, or uh, my cup of water, or my my, what's this called? Garfield Park Conservatory cup of coffee. Stout waste of here. So I'm trying to put a price on that and tell people how to do this, how to think about elasticity, conjoint analysis, uh, economic value to customer, you know, just, just technical stuff and practical, and then also like thought, thought paradigms. Cool. And that addresses the problem of how do I do my job if my job is to price? That wasn't the problem corporate America had. Now, it did a great job. A lot of people love that knowledge because I empowered them to do their job better, but it didn't really change the needle much in terms of putting pricing important to corporate world, corporate Western world, okay? So I said, well, fine. Good job. Thank you, book. Now we have pricing analysts who actually know how to analyze something and managers who know how to manage problems. But... The companies aren't doing pricing well. Maybe I should write a book called Pricing Done Right so that companies can get pricing done right. And then that book, you know, I talk about the organizational relationship, the pricing working with product managers, pricing working with brand managers, pricing working with salespeople, pricing working with finance, pricing as a tool to enable companies to outperform. And research shows that companies will outperform if they invest in pricing capability that is complex, working across the organization, and working across the organization, pricing is even more important in fast-moving, changing times, like semiconductors or during a pandemic, 
than it is during a nice steady state company where everything's fine. So during the pandemic, everybody, a lot of companies failed because they just didn't have the ability. So I thought pricing done right was the problem, was solving the problem for CEOs. How do I actually put pricing in my organization? Well, the book sells well, people like it. I outlined in there a value-based pricing framework an organizational design type approach. It's become a standard at company after company, okay? And you know, you take a look at these two books, I've had the big three strategy firms copy and say, oh, we know this, this is how you do it. It's like, thank you, and I wrote it down. And then I've had the big four implementation firms say, oh, well, you know, we know how to do this. It's like, thank you, I, you know, I, I wrote something and now you're using it, thank you very much. Maybe you can mention my name, but yeah, forget it. Um, still didn't move the needle. And then I listened to the big three strategy firms. You know, your global brand names and strategy that sometimes get sued for bad things, but we'll ignore that. Generally, you all say, well, if I bought from them strategy, I know I got the right answer, the best answer, because they have the best people. The reason why I do that is that think about the the five greatest sales and marketing leaders you would want to listen to. How many of them worked at a big free strategy firm? Usually you get zero. Maybe you get one out of five. Anyway, so that wasn't the problem. And these three, these strategy and implementation consulting firms, I pushed them and said, should pricing be at the C level, you know? Should it be important to a CEO and the partners at these firms, you know, they're making multi-millions for years, said, no, no, we don't need them. I mean, the CEO has enough problems to solve. They don't need some, some mini, you know, small tactical problem like pricing in the big C-level stuff. Why, yeah. is, it, why is that? Well, I I don't I'm not going to speak for them, okay? Hypothetically, or what they told me, I will tell you that 24 hours later, I asked a chief pricing officer at a chemicals company, "Why should you have a title of chief pricing?" He gave a great defense. But I'm just you know pointing out that these consulting firms haven't collectively decided this is important. What about no matter how good of a strategy you have and no matter how good it's implemented and all of that, is, um, a lot of companies lean into discounting. Like, yeah, just discount it. So isn't, isn't discounting sort of a way to say, I don't really know what I'm pricing things at, so discount the crap out of anything until we get uh, things in the door? Well, that's part of the game. And part of the issue is, I mean, I was talking with the food distribution company and they have a pricing software in there, but they can't tell to the salespeople as to why the pricing software is giving them the right answer to what they should close the deal at and what the right range is. Okay? And it's because the pricing software was like a black box and nobody understood it. And the pricing analyst didn't translate it. And the salespeople could, therefore they did, ignore the pricing people. And they just ignored it. Power problem. I mean, so clearly there's a problem of pricing not being treated important. 
So I thought to myself, you know, I got like 400,000 followers. So they call me an influencer, but I don't know if I have any influence. Okay. But I got these followers. Maybe I should connect pricing capability. Now, can you do this to a CEO deciding it's important that we do this to shareholder value, meaning I will fire you, Mr. CEO, because you did not do this. Or I will cut your job short or you won't make much money. So let's, you know, hit the CEOs where it counts, their pocketbook, and tell them why pricing is important. How am I going to get that? Well, I, you know, connect the two, the three three areas. Shareholder value, market cap, with uh, CEO decisions about do I do this? This is important. With actual execution, I have pricing capability. And I put it in a measurement tool, a spinometer, a pricing spinometer, a measurement of your ability to manage pricing. And you know what? People care, finally. I just ignore those consulting firms, just go directly to the CEO and tell them where they stand and let them complain if they don't like my numbers. So 2023... Spinometer, you have inflation mixed with lower demand, and you you have people trying to cut deals to get get them in the door. How, got any predictions for twenty twenty three? I know you're chomping at the bit, Tim. Yeah, you know inflation's going to be here, and if you're not staying on top of it, you're going to be uh, well challenged. However, inflation isn't. Isn't like butter. It doesn't go on everything. Some things are, it's more like, more like, uh, uh, try to buy some eggs. Sure, sure. I was, I was thinking of hominy, you know, it's lumpy hominy and, or chunky peanut butter. You know, it's got big parts, you got thin parts. And you got to be, and to actually know what's going on, you, if you don't have the pricing capability, the detailed level of knowledge within your organization, you're going to get the answers wrong. So that's you know, the key thing here. Um, are they going to discount? You know, you can go back, and I just did this with my students at DePaul. In the beginning part of the, uh, the, re- of the pandemic, we had channel problems. You know, we used to be selling meat into restaurants. They're closed. Now we're selling them into the grocery stores. Oh, wait, I got to cut everything up much smaller because humans in America don't know how to cut up a chicken. Seriously, do you know how to cut up a chicken? You know, you can do it. You can watch YouTube, but you get the idea. Whereas restaurants are used to having whole chicken, sides of beef, et cetera. So we had a channel problem. We had a shifting of things. We had a problem of not enough beans on the store. Couldn't find toilet paper, right? So initially in the pandemic, if you're doing couponing and discounting, you are just giving money away because people were not interested in your discount. They were interested in having toilet paper in the first place. Second problem we had in the initial part of the pandemic is everybody was worried about their brand elasticity. Oh, if I raise the price of Charmin, they'll all switch to Clean Soft. I don't know. There was some other brand. But you get the idea. They're all worried about shipping. The problem wasn't my brand elasticity at the beginning part of the Pandemic, it was the entire category elasticity. You didn't have a choice. You needed toilet paper. I mean, you can double the price of toilet paper. Americans are still going to use about the same amount if they can find it. And so we had a problem on this 
understanding of what's important in the beginning of the, of the pandemic. My brand elasticity versus the industry elasticity. General Mills got it right. I can't say that about Campbell's Soup, which is also a CPG company, you know? And then on the latter part of the thing, finally I got the channel stuff working out. I just have a basic problem of input cost, shipping, logistics, labor, making glyphosate to make corn, to make pigs, to make meat. You know, all part of my supply chain just went way up. Shipping something from Shanghai to LA went from $2,000 to $20,000 per container, roughly. And he's like, what do I do? Well, inflation hit you and your competitors. At this point, you got to raise your prices. And if you don't raise your prices at the cost increase, you're going to just lose money. Campbell Soup, get it wrong. General Mills got it right. Same industry. One has ability. The other one does not. And I don't know how to yell at CEOs louder to invest in this ability so that you can survive than I'm doing. Now, we're kind of in a unique spot, at least in my tenure with this huge inflation, right? So prices are going to go up like eggs. The question is, when or if inflation's ever curved, will they ever bring the pricing back down? Oh, uh, generally the answer is no. I don't know how old you are, Jamie, but I, you know, was on the planet in the seventies. Not like I was young. Oh, I was on the planet, but I was not. Yeah, we did not have huge bank accounts then, but we were on the planet. And I remember watching my grandma and how she managed it. And the price of gas went from a quarter a gallon to fifty cents a gallon. It doesn't go back down. It just stops going. It never does, right? Yeah. And in the areas, you may see prices go down, but generally they don't. Deflation is worse than inflation for an economy. Japan demonstrated that when 20 years, basically deflation or no inflation. Stagflation, right? Isn't that what it's called? Japan? Uh, that's a different idea. That's like a stagnant economy, no GDP growth, and inflation. Okay? Uh, but um, ignore economics terms. Back... Inflation is likely to subside. Some prices will go down, but not all across the board. Just expect, you know, prices to kind of stop going up so fast. That's really what we're looking at. Uh, we had high inflation last year, moderately high. We're talking 10% as being tops, right? And I call that moderately high because if you worked in Turkey or you worked in uh, Argentina, you know, 30 to 40% inflation is considered normal year over year. And these are decent countries, you know, with decent economies. So that's high inflation. We just had moderate inflation that made us all uncomfortable. It'll subside in the next year, my prediction. Not that I can really read tea leaves better than the next person. Tim, what's your prediction on inflation next year? Uh, that it will stop going up so fast and still go up, but just kind of not as fast. Stock market, CEO decision, pricing. Put the three together, connect them, and maybe, maybe people realize that my field of pricing is important. Well, the problem with stock market, it's so short term every 90 days, right? It's, it's hard to make long-term decisions. Is pricing a long-term decision? 
the decision to invest in it is uh, in the short term, they prevent you from doing something stupid like what uh, International Bakery or whoever used to make Wonder Bread did. And they went bankrupt because they tried to make cheaper Wonder Bread. Cheaper Wonder Bread. How much, how many, how much cheaper can you make Wonder Bread in the first place? But they went bankrupt. And now they got bought out by Bimbo. And Bimbo is making our a good Mexican bakery is making our Wonder Bread. And Twinkies. Can you explain to our wait, 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 wait a second. Hold time out. Uh, Americans do not make Twinkies. Is that no. What no. What does this world come to? Tim, for the new new kids that are, you know, just got out of school and uh, they're thinking about going to graduate school. You have to teach a few classes over at DePaul. Can you do a quick uh, segment on explaining the difference between price elasticity and inelasticity, especially when it comes to toilet paper? So price elasticity. I'll give you an example. I read the newspaper. I know. It's so fashion. I read it in, uh, you won't believe this, paper format. I know. I know. It's crazy. I actually love that. I love that. That's a win for me. It's like a TV guide. <laughs> oh God, those are out. <laughs> so I'm reading the well, I'm reading the newspaper, and the journalist begins with, "I raise prices, my revenue is up, but I'm worried about elasticity because I lost volume, and maybe my shareholders should worry about this because even though my revenue is up, I stopped selling as much, and my market share is down." Okay, let's unpack that. First of all, any time I can raise prices and my revenue goes up, I am pricing in the inelastic range. Meaning, if I raise prices, my revenue will go up and my profits will go up, period. Period. Exclamation point. So anytime I can see that, I want to keep raising prices. And what if I lost market share? Well, what am I doing business for? Am I doing business to be big and have lots of market share or to make money? I mean, I got to ask that question because, you know, it's a real question. I can understand wanting to grow market share fast if I'm a startup, you know, beyond beef or versus impossible foods. Impossible foods wants to grow market share and they don't mind spending investor money. Thank you, Google Ventures. Thank you for your money. Please give me cheap, fake meat, impossible foods. Hey, that's great. But if I'm beyond beef and I'm publicly listed, I need to make money or my investors will leave me and I won't have market capitalization. And so beyond beef is trying to raise prices and impossible foods is saying, no, we want market share. Uh, asymmetric warfare, beyond beef is really struggling. It's right, this kind of game. What am I after? Profits or profitability? Pure market share. You know, that becomes a key thing. And I, I, I eat with real food and I want real money to buy real food. So I like profits. Well, well, pardon the pun, but when the shit hits the fan and you have a pandemic and you get all the news reports from Costco, people with three shopping carts of toilet paper, um, that seems to be uh, is that inelastic or elastic? 
Toilet paper as a category is elastic because I can double the price of uh, toilet paper and humans are still going to buy toilet paper. Now, I got Charmin and what's a competing brand? Scott Tissue, who knows? Okay, so I got Scott Tissue. Now, if I raise the price of Charmin, I can switch to Scott really easily. So it's commoditized. No, I wouldn't say that. I just say one's elastic. Okay. The fact that I can switch between Charmin and Scott easily is related to the fact that I have elasticity and I have choices. The fact that I have to buy toilet paper because, you know, I like to keep it clean down there. That's inelastic. My elasticity for beans as a category is going to be inelastic. I like my beans. Whether they're pintos or or black eyed peas or or lentils or you know red beans, what you get a long list chickpeas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want my beans, but I don't care if they're like dual brand dried beans or some fancy name dried beans. They're beans. They're just beans. I don't care. So I'm highly elastic. If the dual brand's cheaper than the next one over, I'll switch. But beans itself. No, I want my beans. I when does some. when does gouging come into play? What what is uh, gouging? Can you define it? Uh, yeah, that's that's the right question. Uh, gouging. Uh, there's a difference between legal statement of gouging and the sentiment of gouging. Uh, people will often cry out the sentiment of gouging, and that's perfectly fine. People don't like high prices. Uh, give you an example of where they're a little bit off. Uh, so uh, price of corn went up and soy went up, and that's basic inputs to making a cow, which is called making a burger or a steak. So during the pandemic, the cost of making a steak, as well as you couldn't find butchers to cut up the side of cow, because we didn't allow as many workers into our country from another country. Uh, anyway. Yeah. No context. Um, so Tyson had to raise the price of beef a lot, like factors five to 10, okay? But they didn't have to raise the price of chicken. So when the price of a steak goes up by a factor of five to 10, you will say, oh my God, they're gouging me on the steak. And they just didn't realize that the input cost went up. That's different from gouging as it's legally defined. So there's certain things like batteries that you cannot raise the price too much after a natural disaster, like a hurricane. And those become state laws in a state like Florida, where they have hurricanes. And that that's a legal issue about, is that product defined or is, that, is the law defined that particular activity as gouging? And that's a totally separate meaning than casual conversation. Oh my gosh, the cost of my 3M mask went up. They're gouging me, which is a separate issue. What about the uh, that pharmaceutical guy Medicine, who, bought, yeah. who bought the, uh, I think the diabetic shots and then raised the price 10x just to make more money? Is that legal? That's gouging. What he was doing was gouging. It's totally legal, but it's legal, right? Yeah, I'll give you an example that I'm familiar with. It was Pharma Bro, Screlly. Uh, Screlly bought a drug that was good for AIDS patients, and he jacked the price up a hundred fold or something. Uh, what he did was 100% legal, 100% legal. Was it moral? Uh, 
that's a big no. You know, ethical? No, I'm not going to support this. But legal? Yes. And he went to jail eventually, but it was for stock manipulation, not for raising the price of this important drug. Okay? That's the Pharma Bro. Where do I think Pharma Bro really messed up? Is he failed to tell Congress as to why he did it in plain language. And the plain language, he did it because he could. And though it's called a generic drug, nobody else in America was allowed to sell it due to FDA regulations. So there's a, there was an obvious problem that regulations prevented this generic drug to come in from countries that we consider safe, like Israel or Europe, because it didn't get FDA approval to come from those countries. Therefore, he was the only person who could make this basic, important drug. So, in a way, monopolies are illegal, but the FDA created a monopoly in another way. That's right. Rules. The FDA created it in this case. Interesting. Congress, in that case, if they were honest, would realize we need to we need to rethink how we do this. Okay. Then you have the government coming in, into play. Let's just look at uh, Harry Truman, World War II. Uh, he was dealing with the unions. So he had to put price fixing on a lot of the commodities. Uh, off the top of your head, how many times has the government got involved in pricing of consumer goods? They talk about it a lot. They get involved here and there. When I'm dealing with a company, generally, it's not an issue that we worry about. Okay, It's an issue the lawyers worry about, not an issue I worry about as a pricing advisor too much. I'm aware of it. I keep them away from doing something stupid. More, more, more international? Uh, there we like laws change and they're big changes. Example, Intel, Intel got uh, charged in Europe for price bundling. And what the big deal was on that one is they changed the definition of what's legal in that court case. Okay. And that becomes a big issue, right? Tyson's in the courts right now for price fixing on chicken based upon the price of the Georgia dock. And I know the people of Tyson, I, I knew them. I, you know, it's like, I don't see that as something they meant to do or something they set out to do. So it's a question of, you know, how do you define price fixing and such like that? It becomes legal definitions more than anything else. So the small business guys that are tuning into this uh, or a growing <laughs> software company, how often, is there a rule of thumb Obviously, you get your book. We already plugged the book and Spinometer. Spinometer? Damn it. How often should somebody raise their price and then see a reduction in orders? Is there like a percentage or a quick rule of thumb? You don't want to give anything away, but you do want to wet their whistles out there. I, I want to be very, very clear. If I can raise my prices and my revenue goes up, I should do it again. Plain and simple. Don't even have to worry about quantity. I'm in the inelastic range. Just keep doing it. Now, if I raise my prices and my revenue goes down, then I need to look at profitability. Did my profits go up or down? Profits went up, raise prices again. If they went down, oh, back off, back off. Go back. But the key point there is discounting. You can raise prices all you want. They're discounting it down. 
to the same price you had it, then it doesn't really matter. It all depends on control of the discounted costs. Yeah, yeah, which goes back to pricing capability and interface with salespeople. Mm -hmm. Team has no conversation of any meaning with the sales team. We've got a problem here. And the pricing team needs to have uh, power and they need to help the sales team understand why, you know, discounting needs to be constrained. So there's this guy, this is a guy called Paul Hunt. Uh, he's senior to me. He's a nice guy out in Toronto. He wrote something like uh, The Pricing Journey. In The Pricing Journey, he talked about five levels of pricing, which is really directly related to what you're talking about, Jamie. And the first level is I don't have no control. And let's be honest, a lot of companies, especially manufacturing and distribution, have no control over pricing. So people do whatever they want. Okay. The next level is I start to have control over pricing, meaning I tell salespeople that my list price may be $14.99, but I really expect you to sell it at $11.02 on average, plus or minus 50 cents. And then I actually have salespeople selling it at $11.02 plus or minus 50 cents. So sometimes $11.52, other times $10.00. 52. There we go. Get the idea. You got a range, you got an expectation, right? Uh, the next one is that I start to adjust that so that I'm now moving it with different kinds of transactions. I'm changing it with the customer type. And then finally, I achieve pricing excellence. Most manufacturing and distribution companies are still at zero, you know, level one. I got no control. And it's just getting that basic part of having some control, moving it into did I set my, uh, Am I starting, did I set my prices right in the first place? Am I segmenting it properly? So like if I'm selling CPG, like uh, Campbell's Soup, I expect Walmart to have a different price than Kroger and a totally different price than Cermak, uh, which is a local Chicago grocery here, Cermak, very, very local, okay? These are gonna get very different prices. And then when you get down to the corner store pricing, all bets off, totally different kind of pricing, right? That's part of your pricing control metrics, your commercial policy. There's a there's like bucus of bucks. Bucus of bucks. Man, that's a great term. Bucus of bucks to be made just in getting that basic price control commercial policy done. Separate from the next set of buckets, bucks to be made from getting your price set right in the first place. And then moving from selling widgets to selling the permission to use my widget in an as-a-service type sale, you know, changing my price structure. There's a lot Car of people who make money in price. CEOs just have to decide they want to do it. Carney and Tim, is discounting, is that a pricing issue or is that a sales issue? It's a pricing issue of its interface with sales. Pricing puts restrictions on sales. Here's where I disagree with Paul Hunt, is he said the most powerful words in pricing is the word no, to say no to salespeople. Um, I like it better when pricing works with salespeople rather than just simply demand something. I think the two should work as symbiotic relationship moving forward, not as a command and control. 
But if you assign a budget to sales, Carney, you're the finance or were a finance guy. Don't you, you can discount. Here's how much you can discount. Here's your budget. You can't go past that. If they go past that, then the net isn't there. Then the, uh, that's where commission comes into play. Cause then you could say, I'm going to, if you discount this, I'm going to, I'm not going to pay you as well. If you really want to promote change, you need to have those in line because salespeople work and how they're paid. Not on a salesperson could care less what our overall company budget is. They can, they care what their paycheck is going to be. And you want to make sure that's impacted. The reality is if you don't jump on pricing and, and do what Tim just said, and you let it, you let it just be chaos for a decade. And we've experienced that. It's really difficult. It's not something easy. It's not going to change overnight. You need to spend years unbundling the chaos that you allowed occur. And it's not going to change overnight. And it's going to be painful. And I think personally, the only way to do that is start reporting from the top down that you're looking at discounting, that you're looking at pricing, and that you've actually got a, a true price rate card that makes sense and be an open book to the salespeople and let them understand how bad their discounting is or how good it is depending on uh, stack ranking and stuff like that so that they know people are looking at this and then you can slowly roll. But that's a cultural change. It is, which is why the pricing spinometer looks at capability and importance. I'm really trying to look at culture. And as Drucker says, culture eats strategy for lunch. Yeah. To have a culture focused on giving customers value and capturing your fair share. Or is your culture just about giving value and taking market share at all costs? And, you know, you can go bankrupt just like WeWork did. So a chief pricing officer and a chief revenue officer, who speaks first in the boardroom? I sometimes see the two combined. And I also see pricing sometimes reporting to strategy groups, like an internal consulting group. Um, when I see pricing reporting to sales, it's more like sales ops. And let's be, I think Jamie is aware of this too, or Jamie would jump in and agree strongly. Uh, there's a necessary function to tell salespeople what a good price is and a bad price is. And it's very operational. That's very distinct from the function of determining what a good price would be and why. It's more of an analytical problem rather than simply a sales op quoting type problem. Yeah, Jamie? I would 100% agree. And I would say the biggest problem is in the SaaS world, since we are the SaaS holes, and if you're in a startup uh, startup world, you need to have someone with expertise that understands the marketplace more than the internal. Because you're, you're especially in the startup, you don't have enough sample size to understand the pricing without understanding the external caveats to it and the costs associated with what offering you're doing. But not the cost. Here's where the shortcomings come into play. Not the cost of doing something today, but the cost of potentially doing something at a bigger scale. Because when you're eating into AWS today, for 10 people might be much more pricey than 10,000, where you get some volume. So they need to start understanding where can I set my pricing so that two years from now, I, I don't have to adjust my pricing because I'm at scale. And that's really where it becomes, it's not an ops person. And 
A lot of sales ops people are not analysts. They are operationally focused. In fact, a lot of sales ops people are former salespeople that I wouldn't even say they're not even the most operationally focused. They just had an Excel spreadsheet when their rep, when their leader was walking by and they said, I don't want to fire you because I like you. Why don't I make you a sales ops person? Because uh, you like Excel. Um, and Jamie, that's a clear example of a difference of capability. Sales ops one capability, which may involve pricing, versus the ability to actually think about pricing in a bigger sense, the strategy sense. Where am I going as a company? And that question is a CEO question. So that's why the pricing person needs to be reporting or in constant dialogue with the CEO or she, the pricing leader, can't get the answers right. And that's where revenue operations is sort of the catch-all for all of that. And that should not report into a CRO unless that, unless we're talking about a mammoth company where the CRO is not in the day-to-day. Uh, I can then somewhat understand it because that CRO is really work, working almost as a CEO of a, their go-to-market side. But there needs to be some independence there because that revenue operations person should be working hand-in-hand with the pricing or potentially leading the pricing discussions um, because they're analytically focused and, and focused on driving better outcomes and future outcomes uh, for the company. Sorry, that's my rant. No, Jamie, I'm totally with you. In fact, one of the companies I work with out of uh, New York City, um, it's again the CRO who's taking the receipt of what I'm giving. And what I'm enabling that CRO to do, chief revenue officer to do, is to know how they should price into one market versus another market. Am I selling directly to the customer? Am I selling to an intermediary? Uh, Am I selling in the US versus Europe? And my job is to help them understand how the price would vary in those channels, what a good price would look like in those different directions. And then he's driving a sales team to go and basically execute against what I say. And what I'm trying to do is not just simply tell them what the right answer is, but why. And this is where sales pricing people get it wrong. And so they just say, this is the right answer. Shut up because I'm smart and I can do math. No one cares I can do math. If you can't give me a rational reason as to why the price is here for that customer and there for that customer, everybody's going to get the low price. Yeah. I, I, I think at one point or another, the CRO, I know a lot of people think the CRO is a former sales guy, great salesperson and stuff like that. Great sales leader. Personally, I think CROs are going to evolve into more of the analytical, operationally focused individuals that can help operationalize the marketing all the way through um, and really have that mindset. And, you know, hopefully they have some sales experience as well, but I don't think it's going to be sales first. I think the longevity of the CRO is because it ends up being just another sales leader layer. And and so like a small ship. So like a small ship from a chief marketing officer into a chief revenue officer, where suddenly now I'm in charge of sales and marketing at the same time. Correct. Who cares about your pricing spinometer, Tim? So I'm getting uh it's working in one degree because the past 10 years or 20 years, I'm talking mostly to pricing professionals. You know, I'm the academic advisor to those to the pricing the Professional Pricing Society Certified Pricing Professional Program. That's a long word. Uh, 
three times fast? Around the globe, people are getting the CPPA exam, and I I created it. I created the curriculum, et cetera. People are learning this. Hey, thank you, pricing people. Um, I'm teaching students how to do pricing, et cetera. I'm talking, I talk too much just to pricing people. And if pricing as a professional is to gonna move beyond whatever it is, I had to get in touch with CEOs. But the first people who started to latch onto this, I'm trying to expand the audience from just pricing people around the planet. First people who launched onto it was day traders, stock analysts. And wow, that was interesting to see sometimes that I'd write something and the day after I posted to actually see a change in a stock valuation. And then over the course of quarter of doing this, the next group that started to pay attention was the company I wrote about. So when I write about TD Cinex, suddenly they're the people who read what I had to write. So it's getting through. I'm getting the shareholders to pay attention, which makes the CEO pay attention, which makes the pricing people say, yeah, I got a career here. Or no, I think I need to go somewhere else. They don't care about my services here. Tim, what do you got going on in February? February 8th, we have the Chicagoland Pricing Professional Network. Uh, it's a luncheon. Uh, Ann Warren, who used to work for Shore, they make microphones. Shore, uh, right here. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. And and then she worked for DirecTV um, in pricing. She's going to be talking. I'm going to talk about pricing spinometers and some of the things I've noticed about specific companies and what they got right, what they got wrong. I'll be dishing some dirt. You know, when I came up with this, I really thought it'd be like Siskel and Ebert. Remember those two? You know, two thumbs up, sort of comical, or thumb up, thumb down, or yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely moved beyond comical quickly, and people paid attention at this. Uh, one rule I have is I don't give pricing spinometers to companies that pay me which leaves me all of the Fortune 500 less three companies. So fine, I got plenty of companies to, uh, to do this. Because, you know, no proprietary. So, so, so what if you actually uh, give a uh, spinometer uh, to, I can't, I, I, I want to say spinometer, spi, spinometer, um, and then the company hires you. Do you take it down? No, because it's already been out there. You know, there's no point on it. I know. In fact, I've converted the pricing spinometer articles into a complete product service line, all right? So right now, I just give it based upon public information on one quarter's reporting. Well, let's expand that to two years of or quarterly reports and financial reports on your competitors. Five competitors, I'll review them. I'll also review you, okay, from your public statements. Then I go in and do a 57 different point study to see how you're doing in pricing along these 57 different measurements to help give a better accurate measurement of your company. Then I'll report what the path should be for the next three years to improve your pricing spine, which are measurable by the pricing spinometer, you know, measurement, oometer. So I'll measure that in two, two to three years of investment strategy with an ROI at the end of the day. I mean, it's like a beautiful little three-month engagement process for these companies. So, uh, so your your spinometer, I can't say, is 
I apologize. I just can't see so much editing a guy can do. <laughs> but um yours is completely external because you don't have a relationship with these people. When they get internal and you start looking behind the scenes and behind the veil, you might change your opinion of them. Yeah. And what they're doing. And it might be drastic, correct? Yeah, yeah. I expect that will happen to some degree. So far, though, I've been writing my pricing spinometers, and I've been getting agreement with other pricing consultants in the field who have internal information about those companies that are like, yeah, that was the right rating for that company. So my ratings are pretty accurate from publicly available information. They could become far more accurate. And most importantly, when you get to the internal stuff, I'm now converting it from high level, you should do something, to... These are the steps you should take in this sequence to get you from where you are to where you should be and make you more money. If you're a RevOps person out there in the Chicagoland area, all three of us are from, from Chicago. If you want to take one of your classes, I would, if I was still running a sales department, I would send my directors and managers to take one of your classes so they can understand pricing because half, half of the problem is communicating why it's the price it is to the salespeople that they got to stick to it. Uh, what What are the classes that you're teaching, Tim? So at DePaul, once a year, I teach pricing strategy. I have taught classes for people at computer CA technologies and all sorts of other companies. Uh, that is an approach that I've seen. To be frank, Pete, uh, it's a lot of work. And most people, you know, they're going to find better ways of doing this. They might work with the Professional Pricing Society, get their certified pricing professional designation, and join that. That becomes a yeah. way for a working executive to learn this stuff. Best way is honestly to hire me as a consultant, and I work with the people you designate me to, and I teach them over the course of three months what I'm doing. And then they come out more knowledgeable, and then they get a CPP, and you start developing a pricing team. Okay, That's become the best way of improving your core skills what's what's the requisite i need to take your class uh and you you should not take the class <laughs> usually you have some marketing class and some finance class got it got it okay and the biggest biggest requisite is not to be afraid of math yeah carney yeah. do you have a pricing <laughs> for dummies pete that's all you <laughs> Yes, it's called a pricing spinometer. <laughs> or spinometer. Dr. <laughs> Tim J. Smith. Now, now wait, Jamie, you wouldn't say thermometer, would you? No, I just, for some reason in my head, I was even, each time you said it, I would say it. I don't know if you saw it, you probably did in the replay. Yeah, who's a dummy it to now? myself, and as soon as it comes out, I go, spinometer. Because I've been reading your articles, I, I I actually I was reading it incorrectly. No, I have the same problem when I read The Economist. It comes to mind eventually. I actually don't know how people pronounce this word. I know what the word means. I know how to use it in a sentence. I have no idea how to utter the sounds. Yeah. Talk to marketing. Dr. Tim J. Smith, thank you for coming on the Sassels once again. We'll have all your contact information. All your contact information will be in the show notes. Sign them up, baby. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. 
DemandFarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kickoff and product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now.